0: It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 65, and today we're talking about acid-base balance. So one of the things about acid-base balance, I know you guys learned about it in your physiology class. It's so interesting because it's one of those concepts that you can really see happening right in front of your eyes in your clinical setting and working with your patients. So we'll go through a quick overview of acid-base balance. And then towards the end of this episode, we'll run through some clinical scenarios where you could see it happening in action. So as you recall, having that proper balance between the acid and the base in the body is really critical to maintaining homeostasis and that optimal cellular function. You recall that the normal range for that serum pH level is 7.35 to 7.45. So if the serum is too acidic, then that pH number will be on the low side. And if it's too alkaline, the pH number will be So in normal conditions, your body's going to manage to keep your pH in that optimal range through buffering and some compensatory mechanisms when they're needed. The main ways we'll talk about it here are via the kidneys and the lungs, because those are the most obvious ways that this compensation occurs in your patients and what you'll really be able to witness and see with your own eyes. So, when the body's pH is too low, again, we say that the patient is in a state of acidosis. This acidosis can be categorized it can be metabolic acidosis, it can be respiratory acidosis. So, let's just talk quickly about some reasons why a patient could have a respiratory or metabolic acidosis. So, one of the most common is respiratory acidosis. You'll see this a lot, and usually it's because excess CO2 has built up in the blood, and this is very common in patients with COPD who are having an acute exacerbation of their obstructive pulmonary disease. You'll see this one a ton. And then metabolic acidosis is also pretty darn common, and you'll see this a lot in your patients who have kidney disease. You'll see it in patients with diabetic ketoacidosis because those ketone bodies are acidic and they build up. Patients who have severe diarrhea can be a metabolic acidosis because they're losing sodium bicarbonate. Patients who are septic and have accumulated lactic acid will be in metabolic acidosis. Uh, Ethylene glycol poisoning or aspirin poisoning also is uh, also going to cause a metabolic acidosis situation. And then on the other side of that are the alkalotic states. So for a respiratory alkalosis, have you ever hyperventilated? Maybe as a kid, you did it on purpose because you heard it would make you feel weird in your head. Well, that's because you've blown off your CO2. So patients who are hyperventilating will blow off their CO2 and have low levels of CO2 in their blood. And now they have respiratory alkalosis. It could also be associated with fever or being at high altitude. And then metabolic alkalosis. That can be due to extreme losses of chloride secondary to excessive vomiting or GI suctioning, and this has to do with chloride shifts in the body, and then hypokalemia can also cause it as well. So let's talk about how the body regulates pH. So the first thing I want you to remember from your physiology course is that the regulation of pH depends on what type of acid we're dealing with. So there are two types, volatile acids and fixed acids. So those volatile acids are the ones that form gas in a solution. For example, carbonic acid forms the gas CO2. And volatile acids, because they're gases, leave the body via the lungs. So think about gas exchange. Well, we're exchanging the CO2 gas for the oxygen gas. So Think about volatile acids being gases and being expelled through the lungs. And then we have our fixed acids. So those have to leave the body through the kidneys. They can't convert into a gas. An example of a fixed acid is sulfuric acid, which is a normal byproduct of protein metabolism. The other one is lactic acid. We talked about that a little bit ago, very common one that will accumulate in severe sepsis. So looking at these two types of acids, the volatile acids and the fixed acids, it's really easy to see why the renal system and the respiratory system play such a key role, but it's not the only way that the body keeps pH in balance. There are chemical buffers as well. So the main chemical buffers in the body, so when you think about chemical buffers, they're not removing the acid or the base the way the lungs and the kidneys are. They're buffering it. So the three three main chemical buffers in the body are protein buffer systems. These involve amino acids that bind and release hydrogen ions as they need to. Protein buffers account for about 66-ish percent of the buffering action going on in the plasma and most of it going on inside cells. So that's a really important buffer system. And then the carbonic acid bicarbonate buffer system, you definitely remember this one and that fancy equation you had to learn in your anatomy and physiology class. That's the key buffer in the extracellular fluid. And then the phosphate buffer system is important in the intracellular fluid and in the urine. So those are some main chemical buffers. We won't go into detail on these. Just know they exist. You did learn about them. And certain conditions can lead to alterations in the way these buffer systems operate and how well they operate. But for the most part, you're mostly going to witness it happening, like I said, watching your patients improve or... uh, decompensate as their renal and respiratory systems are affected. So how do the lungs affect pH? Let's talk about it. So the lungs affect pH balance essentially by altering the rate of gas exchange. Super simple concept here, guys. Slower breathing or conditions like COPD cause CO2 to increase because we're not exchanging it as effectively. So when this occurs, we say the patients are retaining their CO2. You may hear a patient referred to as a retainer. They're not talking about the thing you put on your teeth. If somebody says, oh, Bob's a retainer, you'll know that's shorthand for Bob most likely has COPD and retains his CO2 chronically at baseline. So hypoventilation or obstructive diseases like COPD can cause CO2 to build up. Hyperventilation or that fast breathing, tachypnea, causes CO2 to decrease. So in these cases, we would use the phrase like they're blowing off their CO2. It's not they're ignoring their CO2, they're blowing it off literally. They're breathing it out too quickly. A key thing to know about the lungs and their ability to affect pH is that changes can occur rather quickly-ish. The lungs can kick in and alter pH much more rapidly than the kidneys can because you can quickly change your rate of breathing. I mean, if you tried it right now and started hyperventilating, please don't do this. But within a minute, maybe less, maybe a little more, you would start to feel the effects of that CO2 lowering in your body. So, the kidneys, on the other hand, they're going to affect pH much more slowly. And they do this through the excretion of hydrogen ions in the distal tubules and through the reabsorption of bicarbonate through the proximal tubules. So, recall that hydrogen ions are acidic and bicarbonate is the base. The kidneys can also generate new bicarbonate, I'm saying air quotes, um, new bicarbonate in the distal nephron. And this is achieved, it's a complicated process achieved through a couple of mechanisms. Hydrogen phosphate is involved and the metabolism of ions is involved. And if you really want to dive deep into that, go to the blog post associated with this episode. I link to the whole process there. I really just want you to know that The kidneys are involved in bicarbonate reabsorption, regeneration, and the excretion of hydrogen ions, okay? That's the main takeaway there. So when we're looking at acid-base compensation, this is that key concept that I really want you to understand because the body will try like heck to compensate for an alteration in its pH. So for example, we have a patient in metabolic acidosis. Many times, as long as the lungs are healthy and in decent shape, the respiratory system is going to kick in to help compensate because a metabolic acidosis okay, could be often caused by the kidneys, for instance, or sepsis or whatever. The respiratory system will kick in to compensate. So one of the first signs of sepsis is tachypnea that high rate of breathing? Well, because sepsis makes you a bit acidic. So the lungs are trying to balance your pH and tachypnea is really one of the first and most key signals that a patient could be septic. The respiratory system is trying to compensate. So it's doing this again by blowing off that excess acid. So in cases of a respiratory acidosis or alkalosis, Acidosis is much more common. The kidneys can compensate by alterating how much bicarb is reabsorbed, how much hydrogen is removed. And again, when the lungs are compensating for a metabolic imbalance, if they're able to make a change, they can do it pretty quickly. This could be hours, up to 24 hours. It really depends on how bad the pH balance was and what else is going on with the patient. But the kidneys, on the other hand, they're going to take much longer, at least several days to compensate for a respiratory condition. So patients with chronic COPD, think about this, they have elevated CO2 at baseline. Their pH is a little bit on the low side at baseline, but their kidneys compensate. Their pH will stay more or less within the normal ranges, but it's probably going to be more in that low end of normal, like that 7.35, maybe barely below it, maybe barely above it. But they're okay like that because it's chronic and they're compensated. Or we say partially compensated, but that's a whole other thing when we get into ABG analysis, which we'll talk about later. So another quick word about compensation, again, can be complete or partial. So I want you to know why that is. We don't need to talk about how to figure that out on an ABG right now, but just know why that is. So it's because there are limiting factors in the body. So for example, in cases of metabolic alkalosis, that respiratory drive, is it going to decrease or increase to balance? Okay. It's going to try to decrease in an effort to retain more acid and maintain balance. However... You can only decrease your respiratory rate so much. At some point, you're going to get hypoxic. So that's not good either. So like there are limits to what the body can do. So that's not going to achieve full compensation possibly. It may just partially compensate. And then on the other hand, renal compensation, that's limited by a lot of different things health of the kidneys, renal blood flow, uh, tubular blood flow, all of that stuff is going to play a role in how well the kidneys can compensate for an imbalance. So again, even though it does and can occur, it's not always a perfect process and not always able to fully achieve perfect pH balance. So when do we get concerned about a patient with an alteration in their acid-base balance? So when the pH gets below like 7.2 or in that range or above like 7.55, you're looking at seriously awful things for your patient. Most of the time, if I have a patient, and alkalosis is not that common, I rarely see either respiratory or metabolic alkalosis. You're mostly going to see acidosis situations. So if I've got a patient who has an acidosis and their pH is in the 7.2 range, They're sick. I'm very concerned about them. They're most likely not even conscious. They're so sick. So just know that when it gets into those ranges, it's very bad. The lowest I've ever seen, oh, I want to say six, nine, maybe a little below. And that person survived. And it was only because She was very young, in her 20s, I think. So uh, seriously bad things start happening around 7.2-ish or above 7.5-ish. And again, to know really what's going on with your pH and with your acid-base balance and to determine if it's respiratory, if it's metabolic, you'll learn how to uh, analyze an ABG, an arterial blood gas. And I have a whole uh, series on the website about how to do that. I'll probably do a whole series here on the podcast, create some worksheets, and then you guys can follow along with me as I talk you through analyzing some ABGs. So you can also get this data off of VBG, a venous blood gas. So ABG is arterial blood gas. VBG is a venous blood gas. You can get a pH off of a VBG, but the reference ranges will be slightly different. So just make sure you um, know what you're looking at when when you're deciding, is this patient acidotic or alkalotic? So what are you going to do about your patient who has this acid base? imbalance. So let's look at some patient scenarios and talk about how I typically see them being dealt with and how the patients respond in the clinical setting. So first one we'll talk about is a respiratory acidosis because this is probably the most common. You'll see metabolic acidosis too. Um, Maybe they're tied in first place for most common, but extremely common. So we have Bob, and he's a 68-year-old guy. He's got COPD, which is that chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and he's had it for about six years, so he's had it for a bit. His family brings him into the ER. They found him at home unresponsive. You do a a blood gas, an ABG, and you do the analysis of that, and you see that he is in a respiratory acidosis. So again, patients with COPD are going to retain their CO2. They're not blowing it off as effectively as people with normal lung function do. So when the CO2 level gets too high, Patients with COPD become severely acidotic, and they typically lose consciousness. They just go to sleep. So these patients are treated by assisting their ventilation and helping them blow off that CO2 and improve their gas exchange. So where we typically start is with BiPAP, which is, you've heard of CPAP because people use that at home a lot. This is the hospital, a little bit more intense version, BiPAP, and we call this non-invasive Non-Invasive Positive Airway Pressure. It's not as intense as intubating a patient and breathing for them through a ventilator. It's in between, say, an oxygen mask and putting in a breathing tube. It's what we call sometimes bridge therapy if we're trying to avoid putting in a breathing tube. But in patients with COPD, this is often all they need to get their gas exchange improved and get their CO2 levels back down to their normal range. So what typically happens with these patients is they'll come in, you know, they're coming to the ER or maybe they were on the floor and the nurse can't wake them up in the morning and they come to the ICU. They're very somnolent and usually completely unresponsive. So we'll place them on BiPAP. After a few hours or so, uh, Bob's CO2 level decreases and his level of consciousness improves. So you can watch, like as I was saying earlier, you can watch this with your own eyes as patient's pH balance changes. This is the most drastic example that you'll see, and you'll see it all the time as a nurse. The patient will be unresponsive and then... They'll start to perk up and you'll know. You don't even have to do an ABG to know that their pH and CO2 is improving. You will probably because you do want to trend that data, but you'll know it's getting better because he's waking up. So, a lot of times these patients wake up and that BiPAP mask is really uncomfortable. It blows pretty substantial forced air into the mouth, nose, lungs. It's assertive. So, if It depends on the patient. Sometimes they're used to it because they've been down this road and they tolerate BiPAP okay for a little while. A lot of patients are just, get this thing off of me. I don't like it. So if they're alert enough, following commands you can tell that they're trying to talk to you through the mask but you can't really hear them because it's so um the air is just blowing so much well maybe try them off bipap for a little bit and see how they do grab a blood gas see how it looks if the patient's do fine then they've gotten past they've like gotten past that acute exacerbation sometimes they're not fine sometimes they may have some underlying thing going on with their lungs maybe they've got an infection or something and it's going to take their lungs a little more time to get back towards their baseline function. So we may have to put the BiPAP back on and go back and forth with that. So uh, sometimes I'll just tell patients, okay, we'll leave it off for a little bit. But if you start to get sleepy, we're going to put it back on because your CO2 is rising. And they'll say, okay, yeah, I get that. Okay, so that is essentially a short example of what respiratory acidosis could look like for you. The other most common way you'll see this is in metabolic acidosis. So Jackie is 58. She has end-stage renal disease, and her dialysis days are Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When you get a patient on dialysis, you always want to know what their normal dialysis days are because you want to figure out, we need to continue that here in the hospital, and you need to figure out, have they missed any days? So Jackie... Caught a head cold from her cute little grandson, and she just didn't feel like going to dialysis on Friday. She just stayed in bed and nursed her cold. So it's now Sunday, and her family cannot get her to wake up. So they're very concerned, obviously. They bring her into the emergency room, and her arterial blood gas, her ABG, Reveals that her pH is 7.1 and it's due to a metabolic acidosis secondary to missing that dialysis appointment and her kidneys building up waste products and not able to balance that hydrogen and bicarbonate. So she is in metabolic acidosis. So she's given dialysis right there in the ER while she waits for a room in the ICU and couple hours after dialysis, she starts waking up a little bit. She's not back to baseline. She might get dialysis again tomorrow, but as she gets a little better, she's probably just going to go back home and go back to her routine dialysis appointment. So metabolic acidosis in patients with end-stage renal disease is usually treated with dialysis. And then we'll talk about a couple of not-so-common situations. So first, respiratory alkalosis. So in this scenario, we have Penny. And Penny is 42 years old, and she has a history of severe uterine fibroids. And over this past week, she's noticed an increase in the amount of bleeding she has, but she doesn't make an appointment with her OBGYN because she's trying to get her thesis for graduate school in nursing completed. So she ignores her fibroids. She ignores her bleeding as much as she can. But as the days go by, she gets progressively weaker and she eventually becomes acutely confused. She's got some tremors that weren't there before and even her chest feels just, you know, it's uncomfortable. So her husband brings her into the emergency room and it's found on her ABG that she is in respiratory alkalosis and her CBC, because he told them about her fibroids, show that she is severely anemic at this time. So In response to that anemia, that decreased oxygen carrying capacity of her blood, Penny was hyperventilating in response. And it wasn't the super fast hyperventilation that you might have done as a kid when you were trying to make your head feel weird. It was not so intense that she noticed she was breathing a lot faster. She was just breathing enough to keep her, you know, gas exchange going. But over the course of a day or so of doing this, she lowered and lowered and lowered her CO2 to the point that she became alkalotic. So the treatment for something like this would be to look at the underlying cause. And in Penny's case, that underlying cause is anemia. So she's going to get a blood transfusion right now and probably start feeling better pretty quickly. In severe cases, patients could be placed on a ventilator. And the reason we would do this is if we wanted to forcibly decrease their respiratory rate while supporting their increased oxygen demands with the um, high, um, higher FiO2 through the ventilator. So this would be a maneuver that would require pretty intense sedation because it takes a lot to overcome the body's drive to hyperventilate. So we would definitely want to avoid doing that giving her blood, see how she does. She's probably going to feel a lot better. And, you know, she's here. Maybe she'll want to talk to her OBGYN about getting that hysterectomy as well and kiss those fibroid troubles goodbye once and for all. And then in the last patient scenario, we'll talk about metabolic alkalosis. So we have Chuck and Chuck is 52 and he's got congestive heart failure. Chuck recently moved to your area and he has a new pharmacy. So his new pharmacy places the brand name on his diuretic. He's getting the brand name stuff. He's getting the Lasix. But his prior pharmacist labeled it with the generic name Furosemide. So... He's been extensively educated on the fact that these are the same thing, but he does not realize that because he takes them both and he ends up with massive volume and potassium losses. So Chuck comes into the emergency room with severe muscle weakness. A chemistry panel shows that his potassium level is 24 you hook him up to the 12 lead, you check an EKG, but it's fine. Thank goodness. So this loss of potassium that Chuck has going on is going to cause a shift. And in that shift, potassium moves from the cell into the extracellular fluid. In order to maintain electroneutrality, hydrogen ions enter the cell and In the renal tubules, these hydrogen ions are secreted into the lumen. So these shifts both cause an increase in plasma bicarbonate and raising the body's pH. So to correct his metabolic alkalosis, we're going to correct the underlying cause, which is the hypokalemia. We'll probably also want to replenish his fluids while we're at it. We'll be careful with that because he does have congestive heart failure, but he is severely volume depleted at this point. So Chuck's going to get potassium replacement, and he's also going to get a lot of education on proper medication administration. So there you have it guys, your quick overview of acid base balance. Let me know if you have any questions or comments about how you've seen this yourself in the clinical setting. I would love to hear your stories as well. And then quick announcement before I let you go today. So today is the 20 No, today's the 30th. The 30th of August 2019 and by now, the cart has closed on Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, so if you didn't get into Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, you can still get into Dosage Calculations Bootcamp if you find that you're needing help with medication math and dosage calculations. So dosage calculations was a part of Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, but because it's so important, I offer it all the time as a standalone. Crucial Concepts was designed for people just starting their programs and I wanted them to get in and start the course before classes start. So that's why that had a limited enrollment period. The enrollment will open up again probably in December for those of you starting your courses around January. But if you're needing help with math and doing those dosage calculations, I want you to know that that course is open all the time and you can check it out. Go to my website, straightanursingstudent.com. And if you click on the top menu bar where it says Boot camp you can just find it right there. And there you go. So thank you everyone. And I have been reading all of your reviews and I love them. So if you have not yet gone to Apple podcasts or wherever you get this podcast and rate and review, that really helps us show up for other students so that they can find us too. And your feedback is valuable and meaningful to me. And I very much appreciate it. And I read every single one. So thank you everyone. Have a fantastic day. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by straighta nursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.